Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 373. As part of our science and technology author interview series, today's guest is author, historian, journalist, Charles Fishman. As a reporter, Charles Fishman has tried to get inside organizations both familiar and secret and explain how they work. In his most recent book, One Giant Leap, Charles Fishman introduces readers to the men and women who worked to solve 10,000 problems before astronauts could reach the moon. From the research labs of MIT, where the eccentric and legendary pioneer Charles Draper created the tools to fly Apollo spaceships, to the factories where dozens of women sewed spaceships, parachutes, and even computer hardware by hand, Fishman captures the exceptional feats of these ordinary Americans. One Giant Leap is the captivating story of the men and women charged with changing the world as we knew it. Their leaders, their triumphs, their near disasters, all of which led to arguably the greatest success story and the greatest adventure story of the 20th century. Of course, one of those leaders, President John F. Kennedy, astonished the world on May 25, 1961, when he announced to Congress that the United States should land a man on the moon by 1970. No group was more surprised than the scientists and engineers at NASA, who suddenly had less than a decade to invent space travel. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space. And none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. Oh my gosh, hearing those stirring words from President Kennedy in 1961 brings back that unique, special time in history. I've invited Charles Fishman, author of the new book, One Giant Leap, to talk about his book, the history of that impossible Project Apollo mission, and the remarkable story of the trailblazers and the ordinary Americans on the front lines of the epic mission to reach the moon. Please join me in welcoming via internet phone to the Not Old Better Show, Charles Fishman. Charles Fishman, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. I'm going to enjoy this interview a great deal. I certainly enjoyed the book. Of course, the title of the book is One Giant Leap. I wonder if you'd take us back to 1961. There was just so much going on during that time, politically, culturally, societally. JFK, of course, makes this big announcement about going to the moon. But there are just so many things we did not have at that time, too, including the equipment. So. Tell us a little bit about what we didn't have and how we kind of planned to make that journey given that we didn't have all of those items and that we needed to get on almost a racetrack in order to develop these things. Well, so so President Kennedy said, let's go to the moon on May 25th, 1961. At that moment, it, it was literally an impossible task. <laughs> um, uh, the U.S. did not have a rocket anywhere near big enough to send to the moon. In fact, we were launching astronauts on top of nuclear missiles. That's what <laughs> our rockets were like. Uh, we didn't have a spaceship that could land on the moon. We didn't even have an idea 
of what that spaceship would actually be like. There were no spacesuits that you could hop out and walk around on the moon in. Uh, there was no computer anywhere near small enough or powerful enough to fly a spaceship to the moon. You could not do it without a computer, but we did not have that computer. Um, there was no space food. At that moment on May 25th, 1961, the United States had 15 minutes of spaceflight experience. Of the 15 minutes, that was, that was um, Alan Shepard's uh, just uh, single shot uh, spaceflight up just in a big arc, like a pop fly. Only five minutes of that was in zero gravity. So we had so little experience that in fact, on May 25th, 1961, there was still a debate inside NASA about whether human beings would be able to think in space, whether your brain would work correctly in, I'm sorry, whether your brain would work correctly in zero gravity. It would have been a lot harder to go to the moon if we couldn't think. So we were, we were unprepared in the most basic sense. That is, we didn't have what we needed to do it. And in fact, NASA had told President Kennedy that if he set an end of the decade deadline, a sort of 1969, 1970 deadline, um, there was only a 50-50 chance that we would make it. And, and part of, I think, John Kennedy's sense of leadership and inspiration was he knew that by simply announcing that we should reach the moon by 1969, that that would change the odds, that that would improve <laughs> just, just, be, just because people would rally to the cause and people would be inspired. This really was JFK's dream, and, and it almost became a, a tribute to him. What else was on his mind? during this time period and his, his motivation? Because there were, as I say, there just were a lot of things going on, and many of those things were driving him intensely about this, this particular project. Well, I want to I wanna, I wanna be clear about one thing. This was not John Kennedy's dream. John Kennedy did not have a dream to put man on the moon. This was for, for President Kennedy, the race to the moon was a strictly geopolitical effort. At the moment he said, let's go to the moon, the Russians were absolutely crushing us in the space race. They had, of course, had the first spacecraft of any kind, the first, first space launch of any kind, that was Sputnik. One month after Sputnik, Sputnik was just a, a, a ball the size of a, an oversized beach ball that beeped. One month later, 30 days later, they launched a dog into space, Laika. So the dog had a space capsule, life support system, and actually a TV camera to transmit pictures back to the Soviet Union. We hadn't launched anything, and they had launched a 1,200-pound spacecraft with a, with a dog in it. They, of course, went on the first spacecraft to hit the moon. They photographed the far side of the moon, the, the so-called dark side of the moon, and transmitted photographs back from space. And they, of course, were the first people to launch a human being into space, uh, Yuri Gagarin, just the month before um, President Kennedy uh, asked, gave the speech saying, we should go to the moon. And Yuri Gagarin was launched on a Wednesday. That was a triumph for the Soviet Union, but it was, as much as it was a triumph for the Soviet Union, it was an embarrassment for the United States. It was a humiliation because there was... The, the Cold War was a real war. There was nothing cold about it. He was launched on a Wednesday. That Saturday, 
the Bay of Pigs invasion began. This effort by the Kennedy administration to overthrow Fidel Castro using an invasion by Cuban exiles who had been trained and supported by the CIA. That invasion started Saturday. The actual ground troops landed Monday. And by Wednesday, Cuban forces led by Fidel Castro himself. He left Havana, went into the field and led his own army, had surrounded the invading force and they surrendered. So on, on, on Wednesday, April 12th, Yuri Gagarin was launched into space. On Wednesday, April 19th, US backed forces invading Cuba surrendered to Fidel Castro. In the space of seven days, two global humiliations. And literally, Kennedy wanted to know what we could do to get back in the chase and what Werner von Braun and, and uh, uh, Jim Webb and a lot of other people told him was the only way to get ahead of the Russians is to announce that we're going to the moon. If we say we're going to the moon, that's so hard that the work they've already done doesn't give them much of an advantage. And so Kennedy wanted to beat the Soviets to the moon. He did give this incredible speech a year later at Rice University in September. It's really, it's really a, a, a sort of 20-minute philosophy of why humans should travel in space. It's eloquent, moving, poetic, really lovely. And, and I don't think he didn't believe it, but for Kennedy, going to the moon was... Uh, a purely geopolitical effort. And he had lots of things on his mind, the, the, the Cold War, the rivalry with the Soviet Union, but also this was a moment when civil rights was really coming to the fore, when the women's movement was really coming to the fore. And of course, part of the Cold War would turn out to be um, what was happening in Southeast Asia. And that was already on the agenda uh, uh, when... Um, Kennedy was deciding to, to make this announcement. Kennedy, uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson had literally just gone on a tour of all those Southeast Asian countries and come back to report uh, that things were not going well <laughs> for, the, for the democracy side. So he had lots of things on his mind, but, but given that going to the moon has become John Kennedy's legacy, I think it's important to understand that he himself was very instrumental about it, not sort of poetic, you know, the, 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 the aspirations of man. That was not his approach. The book is excellent, Charles Fishman. Again, the title, One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon. The research is really excellent. I, I enjoyed that a great deal. The book is getting rave reviews for all of these things because I think it's, it's interesting that you're not focusing as much attention as you are on literally the hundreds of thousands of people that made this moon landing possible. Some of the people, this Charles, Doc Draper, Bill Tyndall, uh, famous maybe for, for Tyndallgrams that, that you uncovered, all of these things I just thought were just very interesting. But what else did you learn about some of these people that just fascinated you? Well, You've you've picked it out exactly. Look, the 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 race to the moon, um, the the Apollo missions. That's a story that's been told many times, uh, go, going back to the 1960s and 70s when it happened. But you know, it is almost always. 
told from the perspective of the astronauts. The astronauts were heroic. Um, their work was incredibly demanding, incredibly dangerous, and, and the astronauts themselves were really interesting, quirky, charismatic figures. So it's the, it is fun to tell the story from that point of view. What I tried to do was, there, people have no sense of the scale of this. There were 410,000 people back on Earth doing the work necessary to make the astronauts work to make the voyages possible. 410,000 people working on just 11 Apollo missions. And so the book I wanted to write was a book about what were those 411,000 people doing? And so I, you know, the, um, the folks at MIT had to take computers, small computers in 1962 and 1963 were the size of two or three refrigerators lined up next to each other. That was a small computer. <laughs> but you couldn't send a refrigerator to the moon. We, we did, that, that just would not work. You needed something inside a spaceship that was more the size of a desktop computer today. MIT had to do that. They had to not only make the computer smaller, they had to make it faster than those three refrigerators lined up. So that's an incredible story. That effort was led by this really incredible character named Charles Stark Draper, known as Doc Draper, who was a, an MIT professor and a um, pioneering engineer and scientist. He was really focused on navigation. His team was the first, his team was the first to fly an airplane from Boston to Los Angeles that received no navigational information from outside the airplane. It flew on inertial navigation all by itself. And, and, and that was considered such an amazing achievement that when it was revealed, first it was kept top secret, and when it was revealed, it literally made the front page of every newspaper in the country. Draper went on with, with the team at MIT that he led to um, uh, stand by. You got to talk. Sit, baby. Draper went on with the team he led at MIT to design and supervise the creation of the navigation equipment for nuclear submarines. And nuclear submarines, of course, are actually a little bit like spaceships. They submerge in the ocean and no signals can reach them, but they have to know where they are all the time. And so that was, again, the development of very sophisticated inertial navigation equipment. And that's why Draper and MIT were chosen to design the computers and the navigation equipment for Apollo because they had all this experience doing it. So he was a real, really interesting character. It is funny that you mentioned Bill Tyndall. The, <laughs> MIT sort of got off the track, uh, uh, although, although they were brilliant. They were about four years into their effort. And they had written 40% um, more software than would fit on the flight computers. And they didn't seem worried about this at all. They just kept working away on their brilliant software. And NASA was kind of in a panic. Like NASA, <laughs> NASA understood, as they said to MIT, you can't fly to the moon with 40% more software than fits on the computer. No matter how brilliant the software is, we can't use it. And so they ended up sending this guy named Bill Tyndall they ended up sending this guy named Bill Tyndall, who was a senior NASA staff person in Houston, up to Cambridge to try and grab hold of this project and to be blunt, straighten the MIT people out. And that that took that effort took more than a year. And um, a, a lot of people at MIT would tell you 
that it succeeded not because Bill Tyndall was brilliant, which he was. He was he was an absolute peer of people like Draper and the people developing the software. No one there thought, oh, they sent someone here who can't understand how brilliant we are. It was his manner. He was gracious, um, self-effacing, funny. He, he knew how to use humor as a management tool. Um, but he was also very clear that they were screwing up and they were in danger of preventing America from getting to the moon, despite how genius their software was. If you think about, you think about having to cut out 40% of the software someone's written, that's a, that is a very complicated undertaking. And so, um, so those are two guys that, you know, they're not, they're not famous like Neil Armstrong or, or Michael Collins, uh, or, or Buzz Aldrin, uh, but, uh, but we wouldn't have gotten to the moon without them. And the astronauts would be the first to tell you that the people back on Earth uh, were as important or more important than they were. We are with Charles Fishman, author of the new book entitled One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon. Charles Fishman, I, I know many of my audience are going to be well aware of the Apollo mission, Project Apollo. I've always felt like I've been aware of of that time period, certainly in the, these projects. But the book held many wonderful surprises, and I, I'd wonder wonder if you'd tell us a couple. I, I love the story personally about the American flag uh, that just was almost forgotten. So maybe share with us just a couple of those surprises because they were they're really fascinating. Well, so I mean, let's start with the story you picked out, NASA really believed believed then and to be honest believes today in scripting everything um minute by minute so the apollo flights had very detailed flight plans where everybody knew exactly what they were supposed to be doing at every moment whether you were in the spaceship or 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 back down on earth in mission control um but but nasa didn't pay any attention to the um to the sort of human element of the achievement of going to the moon as, as late as the spring of 1969 with the moon, you know, the first moon launches just weeks away, there was no plan to celebrate having arrived at the moon. Not, not, not like you would have a big blowout you know, party, but <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you make it to the top of the earth, if you make it to the North Pole, if you make it to the top of Mount Everest, uh, if you make it to the top of Denali, you you bring a flag, you you mount the you know you 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 uh, you erect the flag, you have your picture taken, something like that. And there wasn't a moment laid aside for that. And NASA had no plans to bring a flag. And some folks inside NASA started sending memos about this, sort of in February and March. And the first meeting about this, NASA created the committee. Uh, to on the committee on celebrations for the first lunar landing, and uh, which which does sound like a modern um, NASA creation, doesn't it? And um, the committee on celebrations did not meet until April first. And it's worth pausing a minute to say April first and Apollo eleven launched July sixteenth. In in spaceflight terms that's zero preparation time, right? Every piece of equipment that was going to the moon on April 1st had long since been designed, tested, um, uh, procedures written, the astronauts trained. A lot of that equipment was already loaded 
on the Apollo 11 Saturn V stack. Uh, we weren't we weren't imagining new stuff to take uh, on April 1st. And um, there's a guy in another another character in in, um, in in this book who's sort of unknown. A guy named Jack Kinsler. He was actually head of a group of 200 people in Houston who made stuff for the astronauts that couldn't be gotten. Uh, commercially, he, he was head of technical support services, a really kind of genius group of of engineers and and um, and technicians. And he was the one who came up. He he went to the meeting. He was asked to come to the meeting. He brought a mock up of the plaque, which was ultimately sent to the moon, saying we came in peace for all mankind and signed by the astronauts and by with, with the signatures of the astronauts and Richard Nixon. He also came with a plan for a flag. He said, you can't go all the way to the moon and not <laughs> plant a U.S. flag. Not that we're claiming the moon. In fact, the U.N. A UN treaty signed several years earlier made it illegal to, quote unquote, claim the moon. Just we came. Here we are. Here, here's who we are. And he was the one at that meeting who had come up with this idea for a flag that had two flagpoles, the standard vertical flagpole that you hang the flag on, but there's no air, there's no atmosphere on the moon. So if you just planted a flag that looks like a normal flag back on Earth, the flag just would have hung limp. And his idea was that there would be a second pole identical to the first, and they would be hinged at the top corner. And the astronauts would swing that pole up into place, horizontal, like a curtain rod, and it would it would be it would be latched so that it would it would lock in place horizontally. And then you would slide the flag out on it, just like a curtain on a curtain rod. And and in fact, he said he was inspired. The design was inspired by by watching his mom make curtains throughout his own mm-hmm. childhood. So they went out and bought an off-the-shelf flag. They they hemmed it at the top so it could slide out on the on the um, on that horizontal flag, uh, horizontal pole, and that's how the flag ended up looking like it was "quote unquote" flying, even though there's no atmosphere. If you if you look at the pictures of the flags for all the NASA, all the Apollo missions, and you can call them up in, in the blink of an eye on mm-hmm. on the internet, um, you can see the horizontal pole. You can you can see the sort of the, the the bulge of it in the top of the flag. So and there were just dozens of stories like that. I found a story like that literally every day for four years. One of <laughs> one of the most striking things about Apollo was that it required incredibly advanced technology. It required us to develop things that didn't exist. The computer is an example of that. The material for the heat shield a kind of epoxy, a resin that could withstand 5,000 degrees of, of heat and 25,000 miles an hour, an all-new material. The spacesuits themselves, 21 layers of fabric nested inside each other. We, we had no trouble sort of engineering new cutting-edge and, in many cases, brilliant ideas. What we didn't have was the technology to make them. And so the spacesuits, 21 layers of fabric, strong enough. Imagine 21 layers of fabric. If you, if you put on 21 T-shirts, you wouldn't be able to move, right? <laughs> 21, 21 layers of fabric, strong enough to stop a micrometeorite, but flexible enough to allow the astronauts to do everything they needed to do. Every single layer sewed by hand. The, the brilliant cutting-edge computer, the smallest, fastest computer ever created, well, 
that computer was ahead of the computer memory technology, which would come online in the next two, three, five, and six years. And so the memory of the Apollo computers was woven by hand. Each circuit, each one and zero, was literally woven with a needle and a wire by women in a factory in Waltham, Massachusetts, a Raytheon computer factory. It's almost hard to imagine what that even means. <laughs> not only were they weaving the memory, this was not erasable memory. They were weaving the memory in the pattern that was specified by the computer programs that had been written by MIT. And so every single one and zero had to be in exactly the right place. It took eight weeks to hand weave the memory for one advanced Apollo flight computer. So I was in particular struck by the, the, the parachutes were hand sewn. I was in particular struck by how much work had to be done by hand. You had this kind of merging of 21st century advanced spaceflight technology with, with 19th century handicrafts. I just love all these stories. And uh, I could talk to you for a long time, Charles Fishman, but final question for you. One of maybe a, a bit of a perspective question. So looking back now, tell us maybe how you think the money was spent. Your final chapter in the book is titled, How Apollo Really Did Change the World. All that money spent, maybe tell us what, what's changed. Well, I think, I think what's really important at the 50th anniversary is to say two things. First, Apollo wasn't that expensive. People say, oh my God, it was a huge amount of money. In fact, it was not a huge amount of money. It cost $19.4 billion in the actual dollars spent in the years they were spent. If you add up from 1961 to 1972, we spent $19.4 billion. The Vietnam War happened during exactly the same period, the, the, the last half of it. There are two individual years of the Vietnam War, which lasted 10 years. There are two years of the fighting in Vietnam, each of which cost more than $19.4 billion. There are two 12-month periods where Vietnam alone in that 12 months cost more than the entire Apollo program. During the, during the 10 years, 12 years we were going to the moon, we spent, let's, let's call it $20 billion going to the moon. Americans spent $40 billion on cigarettes during that same 10, 12-year period. So could we afford it? We could unquestionably afford it. There's all kinds of ways, even in 1968, you know, 1971, to spend $20 billion. But the idea that it was somehow a ridiculous, out-of-reach expenditure is not true. If we could afford Vietnam, we could certainly afford the moon. So I, I disagree with the conventional wisdom that it was really expensive. And the other, the other bit of conventional wisdom is that it was sort of a brilliant performance, but in some ways it was a show that it got us nothing back on earth. And I, I think that is a dramatic misinterpretation of what, of, of the value of Apollo. The advanced computer technology alone, the, the flight computers that flew all of the Apollo spaceships all the way to the surface of the moon and back, those computers were far and away the most advanced computers that had been created to that time. They were the first computers to use integrated circuits anywhere in the world, the first computers to use computer chips. They proved that computer chips could get the job done at a moment when no one wanted to use them. In fact, as NASA was deciding to use integrated circuits, IBM was designing 
one of its most computer one of its most important computers in history the IBM 360 it was the first general purpose computer for business if you if you ran an ad agency if you ran a hospital if you ran a factory the the, the goal was to sell you an IBM 360 to help you with your work IBM said at exact in exactly the same year 1962 1963 you know what computer chips aren't reliable enough for us we're going to stick with transistors IBM didn't start using integrated circuits until 1970, after they had flown to the moon twice. So NASA took a bold leap. NASA was the single largest purchaser of integrated circuits five years in a row in the entire world. And NASA drove the price down 95%. When NASA started using them, they cost a thousand bucks each. By the time Armstrong and Aldrin landed on the moon, those same chips, or in fact, much better, much better versions of those chips cost a dollar fifty-eight. So from a thousand bucks to a dollar fifty-eight, and and NASA did that. The second thing that going to the moon did was it changed completely the popular attitude about technology and computers. In 1960, in 1961, ordinary Americans, ordinary people in the West had no experience with what we think of as technology. It was a it was a war fighting tool. It was it was from the you know, from, from nuclear weapons, from the atomic age. Ten years later, we had spent a decade watching men and women sitting at computer consoles on TV. What were they doing? They were doing the hardest thing one could imagine. They were using those computers to fly people to the moon. And so people gradually came to appreciate that computers could be a useful tool and that they were trustworthy and that they were accessible, that they weren't something that was just a military tool. And so between 1961 and 1971, deep inside the computer industry, Apollo had this huge impact in transforming the, the reliability and the cost and the reputation of computer chips. And out in the big world, NASA changed, Apollo changed how we came to think about the value of computers. Sure, we would have iPhones today, we would have smartphones today, we would, you know, I think Jeff Bezos would have started Amazon without Apollo. But you know what? We would have smartphones without Steve Jobs. We would have some way of typing memos without Microsoft Word from Microsoft. You don't say, oh, someone would have invented word processors. We're not gonna give credit to Bill Gates. Someone would have invented smartphones. We're not gonna give credit to Steve Jobs. That's kind of the attitude. It's like people say, yeah, Apollo is really important in that, but it would have happened anyway. Well, okay, who cares? <laughs> let's, let's pause and appreciate what the investment of the US taxpayers did to dramatically accelerate and change the course of the digital revolution. So for me, on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, I think it's really important to sort of step back and say, no, it wasn't, it wasn't crazy expensive. By the way, it was a government program that came in on budget, on time, did what it said it was gonna do, essentially scandal free the, the apollo phone one fire was a disaster but it was not a scandal it was an accident uh and we got what we paid for right at the moment right we bought we bought moon landings and we got them <laughs> but but we got a lot more than that we got this incredible transformation of the role in technology of technology in society and our perception of it and, and that, that was worth 10 or 100 or 1,000 times what we spent on it. And so I think, it's, I think it's really important to appreciate 
how significant that was in the wider world back on Earth. Charles Fishman, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for the enthusiasm and, and all the research into this wonderful book. Again, the title is One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon. Thanks for your time. We just uh, really appreciate it. I'm going to recommend this very highly to my audience, but Charles Fishman, the best to you, and, and thank you again. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Paul. As you can tell, it's a, it's, it's a great story. It's fun to tell, mm-hmm. and it's also fun to read about. It is. It truly is. Thank you, Charles Fishman. My thanks to author, journalist, historian Charles Fishman for joining us today. Please check out the links for Charles Fishman in his new book, One Giant Leap, in our show notes. Of course, my thanks to you, my wonderful Not All Better Show audience. Please keep your emails coming to me with show ideas and suggestions and comments at info at notold-better.com. Remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.